Hey, it's Sarah, and That's What She Said is presented by Gatorade. Gatorade knows there are many paths to greatness. Sometimes it starts with a goal. Sometimes you need to show grit. Sometimes the journey is a grind. Whatever path you take to greatness, Gatorade's proven formula is there to fuel it. Greatness starts with G. The Book of Boba Fett is coming to Disney Plus on December 29. But starting today, you can watch the trailer for this thrilling Star Wars adventure of the legendary bounty hunter Boba Fett and mercenary Fennec Shand. Follow the journey as the two navigate the galaxy's underworld to stake their claim on the territory once ruled by Jabba the Hutt. That's The Book of Boba Fett. Check out the trailer on Disney Plus starting today. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Welcome to a very special episode of That's What She Said, featuring my ESPNW Summit interview with mega superstar, amazing talent, and incredibly nice human being, Sarah McLaughlin. It was a a real thrill to sit down with her and Tori Pines before her first time performing in 20 months. Also, getting to the ESPNW Summit down in San Diego area was her first time on a plane since the start of COVID. So we felt very lucky to have her come all that way from Canada. And I just said Canada, like Canada, like I'm from there. I'm not. Uh, We had a great chat. We talked about her influences as a kid, her first record deal her sort of visionary idea to create Lilith Fair and then how she proved that it would work. Uh, We talked about pushing back on expectations from record label execs so she could be her authentic self, dealing with both the good side and bad side of fame, including how her influential music has done everything from saving lives to attracting a stalker. Uh, And we also get into her nonprofit, the Sarah McLaughlin School of Music in Canada. Before the interview, a reminder to follow, rate, five stars please, and review That's What She Said with Sarah Spain on iTunes or the podcast app, like LDubs424, who wrote, my actual favorite. Okay, I'm an all things Detroit sports fan and typically don't enjoy listening to Chicago fans, but Sarah is the exception. I love this podcast. I'll take it. Honestly, this this is a podcast for fans of all teams. Even the Lions. In fact, especially you, because um, I imagine you need cheering up on a regular basis, and hopefully this pod could do that for you. So thank you, L-Dubs, for 24. Okay, let's get to the interview with Sarah. That's what she said. Find a comfortable seat. Grab your tissues. Just full warning, I cried through the entire sound check. I made it about 25 seconds. Uh, So later on when the performance happens and I'm crying, just don't, you know, are you okay? What's wrong? I'm great. I am awesome. I just cry a lot at music that I love, and I am such a huge fan of Sarah McLaughlin that I have a feeling it's going to get pretty uh, feels up in here, pretty emotional. But I'm super excited to chat with her, and how lucky are we that this is going to be her first live performance in almost two years. She said she's a little nervous, so let's make sure when we bring her out, she knows how wonderful and warm and welcoming we are. She has sold over 40 million albums worldwide. She has three Grammys, 12 Juno Awards. She's in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. She's the founder of Lilith Fair, which not only rocked all of our faces off, but raised $7 million for local and national charities. 
She is about to blow your minds with what she has to say and what she has to sing. She is Sarah McLaughlin! Ah, <laughs> oh, see? See how nice they are? They're so ready for you! <laughs> Thank you! Hi! Hi. <laughs> You're closer to the piano. Oh God! Oh, we both rocking the black and the leather is meant to be. I've got the bottoms. You've got the. There we go. Beautiful. Hi everyone. Hi. (laughs) Oh my God! People (laughs) in the same space. I'm so excited. (gasps) Okay. Okay. So for real. This is going to be your first show in almost two years, but also this was your first plane trip. Yeah, 592 days ago, I did my last show to an audience. And this is my first plane trip in 20 months. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Look at that. It was fine. It was fine. Yeah. The yeah. planes were, yeah, we're good. But to, to, to get out of Canada, to come here and to be with all of us was um, the first big step back. And I'm so thankful I did it. Yeah. Yay. I'm Yay. so happy awesome. to be here. And this is... Yeah, fantastic. There's so many things to get to. Um, your past, your future, all the work you're doing with your foundation. But I want to start at the beginning because I love picturing you as a four-year-old with your ukulele and discovering then that music was going to change everything for you. And you, mm-hmm. you said music saved my ass. Mm-hmm. Elaborate. Um, well, I was a pretty awkward kid. Um, Everything was fine until grade seven. Actually, the summer between grade six and grade seven, I practiced kissing with my friend Betsy Kitchen um, <laughs> because I didn't have a boyfriend. And then... In Better grade, than a pillow. Yeah, and it, it, it worked quite well. Um, but in grade seven, therefore, I was labeled a lesbian and there, my social life was dead because um, that, unfortunately, was, you know... Oh, is this, do I need this one instead? Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. How's this? Can you hear me better? Okay. Okay, all that you missed is she was a lesbian, right? That I was labeled a lesbian between grade six and grade seven. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, for whatever reason, it wasn't just that. I mean, I was a weird kid. Anyway, I never really fit in. And um, music was my salvation. You know, it was the one thing that I was, I, that I knew I was good at. It fed me. It gave me a sense of my own self-worth, my own identity. And it was always there for me no matter what. And I spent a lot of time alone um, <laughs> in my room or in my house or in my backyard. I was grounded all the time for various reasons as well. So I got really good at croquet. Okay. And, <laughs> Is that a Canadian And making or? dolls. <laughs> it's a weird English thing. You know um, uh, Alice in Wonderland? Yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, croquet. Okay. You know, mallet and balls. And, <laughs> yeah, anyway. There's one of those dolls. Is that homemade? Oh, yeah, look at those teeth. Wow. Oh, yeah, there's my boy George face. Yeah. I Grade 10, I was so in love with boy George, and I, I dressed like him every day, braids, hat, everything. And, oh, yeah, that's, God, that looks, that reminds me so much of my daughter, India. She's 19 now, and I, I see pictures of myself back then. I go, oh, we look so similar. She hates it when I say that, of course, but she's like, I um, adorable. We were on the, the call prepping for this, and you said, oh, I was so awkward. I'm like, okay, every person says that. And then you go back, and they were like, voted most popular in Homecoming Queen. Oh, no, no, I really Oh, was. well, people made fun of me because I was so skinny. I'm like, that doesn't happen. And then, and then, and then you said, boy, George phase. And then I was like, okay, I'm buying it now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there is some truth to this. That's all I needed sure. to hear. Yeah, no, I was... the, the boy, George phase. So your influences uh, were, were, 
things that totally make sense. Cat Stevens, Joan Baez, Simon and Garfunkel, magical storytellers that make you feel when you listen to their music. And then Peter Gabriel was your obsession. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about like how this music hits you different. So I, yeah, I grew up listening to wh- uh, who you just referred to because that was who my mom listened to, um, along with the Stranglers and, uh, the Sex Pistols. That was my brother's influences. Um, it hasn't quite found its way in to my music yet. Um, but yeah, I loved folk music. And, uh, when I was 16, I heard Peter Gabriel for the first time and he blew my mind because it was sort of this, this amalgam of really modern, Beautiful music, uh, but really smart lyrics, uh, intellectual and visceral at the same time. And it just, uh, really good stories, but just, I don't know. It, I, I'm still, I'm still trying to figure out what it is, but, yeah. um, I think I'm not alone in, in loving Peter Gabriel. I mean, his body of work is incredible and, you know, his philanthropic work is great too. He's just a, a an amazing, amazing writer. And I, I thought, I want to make people feel the way he makes me feel mm-hmm. when I listen to his music. And that was sort of the, the first catalyst for like, you know, I, I, I want to do this for the rest of my life in some form or another. And you met him once. I met him when I was making uh, my second record. I was in uh, New Orleans working at Dan Lanois studio. We were the poor cousins up top in the attic <laughs> in Studio E or something like that. Um, and he was in the kitchen. He was working on horns, I think, um, in the main studio. And I walked into the kitchen and there was Peter Gabriel getting a beer out of the fridge. <laughs> And that was my holy shit moment, um, where I just, I, I didn't know what to say. I was like, okay, fuck, think of something smart right now. And I was like, hi, how's it going? And he was so lovely and, and he just was so warm and open to me. He's like, oh yeah, I'm in the studio doing horns and it's, I, how's it going for you upstairs? And oh, it's slow. He goes, oh, me too. And so we bonded over how slow we were rehearsing and or recording and, had a beer together and nice. then, yeah. And then but you still haven't performed with him. I have so not. So we're all going to put that juju into oh, the put air. Oh, the universe. Okay? Everyone yes. at once, we're putting that into the universe <laughs> that Sarah's going to get to perform with Peter Gabriel sometime soon. That would be amazing. We got to make that happen. So let's go back before that second record. You're at your first record deal. You're fronting a band and a performance with them inspires a record label to send you to Vancouver and you arrive, you describe yourself as a 19 year old punk from Halifax. And they send you in thinking you'll be working with the other musicians there and none of them want anything to do with you. And now it's, hey, just write for yourself then. Pretty much. Yeah, I think the idea was I w- it was a small independent label that I was signed to and it's kind of like a family and all these other young indie bands were signed as well. And I think they made a bold assumption that these other bands would want to write with me. And I had zero track record. I had I'd written a few melodies with the other band I was with. So they... um uh, they weren't so keen on it as it turned out, but I was already there. And so um, my record company said, well, see what you come up with on your own. And so I set about doing that. And I, I, I'm, I'm kind of amazed actually that I didn't get sent home because I don't think I had any clue of the, the golden ticket that I had been handed. Mm-hmm. Not only did they give me an opportunity to make the kind of music that I wanted to make in the time that I wanted to make it, they didn't force me into any particular direction. They didn't tell me how to dress, how to look, the kind of music to make. They said, see what you come up with and let's, <laughs> let's go from there. And 
that's what I did. I made my first record and, um, you know, they, they had a few comments, but really it was just like, no, this is great. Let's put it out. And then I toured and toured and toured and toured and went across Canada over and over, went to every radio station. Then I went to America and went to every, you know, first, second, third, you know, um, size city town and went to all the radio stations and performed to 25 people. Then went back and performed to a hundred people and went back again and performed to 250 people. And then, then I think that was, eight, that was 18 months in, yeah. or two years in. And then they're like, okay, we want another record now, like <laughs> next week. I'm like, oh, I'm exhausted. <laughs> Let's go back to this first one. Couple things. Um, that first song you wrote was Out of the Shadows. What do you hear when you listen to that song now? Um, I, well, I actually, to be honest, I haven't listened to it in probably I listened to it today. 20 good. years. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not your best, but it was uh, the first ever. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, it's six, eight. Yeah. I mean, I was really into waltzes at the time and I was, uh, I was very uh, into 12 string guitar and I just was figuring out how to play that. Um, which isn't that much of a stretch from six string, but, um, it's a bit of work and, uh, yeah. Oh, I was reading Jersey Kaczynski's The Painted Bird. Now I remember. Mm. Yeah. And it was about th- this little boy in wartime and, and, um, I just was inspired by the story and thought, okay, I'm going to try and write. I get, what am I going to write about? I don't know. I have <laughs> no idea. So I'm like, let's write about this boy in this book. And that's that was the inspiration for it. I don't think she was around yet, but it has a tiny Tori Amos vibe to it. It definitely has that sort of um, that indie searching kind of vibe. And I know you said when you started writing, especially the first album, it was a lot of being inspired by other people before you figured out who you were and what you wanted to bring to your music. Oh, for sure. I mean, I hear... I hear a ton of Kate Bush mm-hmm. in my music, especially in that first record, because I was listening to a lot of Kate Bush, Cocteau Twins, Dead Can Dance. Um, and yeah, I, yeah. I, I hear, especially, I especially hear Kate Bush. I'm like, okay, stop listening to Kate Bush. <laughs> Moratorium on Kate Bush. Let's get back to the album cover, because you mentioned how this Canadian label was just do your thing, whatever you want to do. And that included you deciding to give yourself a haircut the day before the uh, album photo shoot? Well, yeah, I actually, it, it, it was a little worse than that. Um, it was two weeks before, and I had this great big head of beautiful curly auburn hair, and I cut it about an inch, <laughs> inched my scalp, and then bleached it white. Oh. Because oh. that's what you do when you're 19, yeah. if you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a really good idea, and I was like, oh, Christ, what have I done? Um, and you know, I walked into the, the studio and, and Mark Jowett, who is the, the A&R guy who s- saw me first and said, you know, please come and, and, and be part of our world. Um, he just looked at me and he's like, Oh, <laughs> Oh, that looks really good. <laughs> yeah. You know, I could see him freaking out quietly, but he didn't, he didn't make me feel bad about it. He says, okay. And then as you know, a week later I dyed it black and that's well, I think I hand colored the thing myself. It's like a black and white photograph, and I, they had those fun little markers. So I, I colored myself auburn. <laughs> it was black. So not surprisingly, from what we've all heard about Canada, they were welcoming, they were kind. They said, "Do your thing, and we'll support you." And then you got to America, <laughs> and America yeah. said, "You're fat, and you should wear Jean-Paul Gaultier." And we don't like hippies. We should change everything about you because that's why we signed you, of course, to change everything about you. So what was that like, especially because you said you were naive about how great you had it the first time. So I assume you walk into America thinking this will be similar. 
Yeah, I, I actually had no idea what I was in for. And, and to be fair, they weren't all like that. But um, <laughs> I, I did have uh, an, A&R, an A&R guy come to the studio um, maybe three months into my second record. And I was so in love with everything that we were creating. I was so happy and passionate about it. And I sat there and, and, and he listened to it. And after I said, so what do you think? He goes, yeah, I don't know. It's not, it's not it. And I'm like, well, doesn't it make you feel something? And he looked at me and says, well, honey, that is not the point. Yeah. And I'm like, well, f- you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't say it. That is, well, I, I, you know, I was like, I, I phoned my manager in tears. I said, if this is what it's like to be on a major label, I don't want it. I want, I want my safe place that you guys showed me was possible that I could be exactly who I wanted to be. Um, so my manager went to Clive Davis, who was the president of Arista Records at the time. Uh, and to Clive's credit, he agreed to leave me alone and not, not A&R me, um, probably because they weren't really spending any money on me. So it didn't, <laughs> was no skin off his back, really. He said, sure, if she wants to do it herself, we'll, we'll see what happens. And thankfully, um, it, it worked out okay because it worked, okay. worked my butt yeah. off. And, but yeah, that, that was challenging. And of course, the first video as well, you mentioned about the John Paul Gauthier suits. They, um, they, they had, a, they brought a stylist in. Of course, I, I styled myself, as you could plainly see on the first cover. <laughs> quite proud of that um i think i made that dress too but um so yeah it was money you're saving them right i mean sewing your clothes you're coloring the album in it was an indie label okay (laughs) and i you know i've always i'm i'm creative i'm I'm a visual artist as well so i love the the ability to to be able to have my hand in in everything creative about it but um uh where was i um john paul gauthier john paul gauthier see i blocked it out because it was so offensive to me um (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I'm a hippie. Like, you know, I'm pretty shrubby. Uh, this is, you know, this is me dressed up like I've been wearing, I'm looking at you jealous of your, like, yeah, I live in Birkenstocks and, and, and sneakers. Put on shoes again. Every once in a while, you know, and this is fun. It's an opportunity to dress up. Anyway, Jean-Paul Gaultier is a fantastic designer, not my bag. Um, very structured, very, you know, just, I was like, can I have, can I have a flower dress? Because that's kind of what I'm into. And, but I was a good Canadian girl and I've, it, it, 19, 20 years old, you're thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to do whatever they tell me to do. And I'm looking at these clothes that don't make any sense on my body. Um, and I'm just like, I don't know what to do. I was so, so upset, but I, I, cause it was so not me. But anyway, so I, I eventually got the flower dress as yeah. well. So I think I just, I probably complained to my manager again. And, Isn't and he fought the fight for me because I did not have the, the guts to say it myself at that's that point. That's what they're there for. Yeah. Isn't Gautier the guy with the cones for Madonna? Yeah. Yeah, that seems like you. Yeah. You might have missed out on something big there with the cones. I gotta say there is a new balance bathing suit in my little gift bag. Yeah. It's not dissimilar. Okay. It's like, it's like after party? <laughs> cool. Okay. We'll talk about it later. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I want to talk about coming 
being a young artist and your first album was super important to you and you were feeling it on the second one, but by no means had you had the kind of success that I would necessarily think allows you to walk in to Clive Davis and say, I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it my way. And I'm trying to reconcile that with a child who didn't feel like she belonged, who was often alone, who didn't have a place. And and playing armchair therapist or psychiatrist, I would imagine you would want to make people happy. You would want to please them because you just want people to bring you in and accept you. That doesn't jive with someone who's willing to say, no, I want to do this my way. I'm not going to listen to you. How do you explain that? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> I, I, I still don't know. I think... Um... I feel like because I was shown what it could be, what it could be like, and the creative freedom that I was given, I just, I didn't want to lose that. And I never got into it to be famous or, you know, uber successful or whatever, whatever we thought fame was. I think maybe I did briefly at 17. Then as soon as I had a little bit of it, I was like, oh yeah, no, no, that's <laughs> no, that's, it's, it's weird. It's weird. But, um, I think I just, my, my desire to be integral to who I am and, and, and what I believe in and what feels right to me. Um, I couldn't shake that. And I just wanted to be able, and again, it's, a, it's such a, a, a luxurious position to be in to say, I, you know, I don't need that to continue to do this. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm okay doing this. If I'm an artist that if I can make a living, doing this thing that I absolutely love. I don't need to be rich. I, I don't need to be hugely successful. But if I can reach this place in myself that, that makes me feel so good and seems to make other people feel so good too, like that is the essence of it. And that's the most important thing. And all the other stuff is gravy. Um, and I just, I wanted to keep that. I didn't want to lose it. And that that was so, so, so important to me. And, and my... My integrity, like my, mm -hmm. just what I believed in was strong enough, I guess, that, yeah, you know. that's huge. <laughs> we'll get right back to the interview, but first. You gonna learn today. The words of the week, yes, there are two, are musical genres that have fascinating etymologies that I never thought about or considered before. So rock and roll, which dates back to the 17th century, uh, from the more literal rocking and rolling experienced by sailors back on the day due to the motion of the ship on the sea, which inevitably led to its use in the 1920s as a euphemism for dancing or sex. And by the time it was used regularly in the 50s by DJ Alan Freed, it had lost enough of those sexual connotations to be an acceptable term for playing or dancing uh, to a certain type of music, rock and roll. Okay, the other one that shocked me due to both its connection to sports and also its connection to a very sophomoric word that we all know very well that I had never once connected to it is the word jazz. So from 1912, American English first attested in baseball slang, then as a type of music in 1915. So perhaps ultimately dating back to the slang jasm, J-A-S-M, which in 1860 meant energy, vitality, or spirit, particularly in a woman. So in J.G. Holland's book, Miss Gilbert's Career, the quote, she's just like her mother. Oh, she's just as full of jasm. Now tell me what jasm is. If you'll take thunder and lightning and a steamboat and a buzzsaw and mix them up and put them into a woman, that's jasm. Okay, now that 
also may go even earlier to 1842 and the word jism, G-I-S-M, which by the end of the 1800s meant not only vitality, but also virility, leading to the word being used as a slang for semen, you know, jism, jizz. Okay, all of this comes from Lewis Porter's Where Did Jazz the Word Come From, an article on WBGO.org. And he writes, quote, Jazz seems to have originated among white Americans and the earliest printed uses are in California baseball writing, where it means lively or energetic. Still carrying that meaning today, like, you know, let's jazz this up. By 1915, jazz was being applied to a new kind of music in Chicago and seems to have been first applied to Tom Brown's all-white band, which hailed from New Orleans. This was followed by many printed references to jazz as a music style, unquote. You can go read the full story. You could see all the disproved theories of where the word comes from, battles for origin, uh, criticisms of saying it originated by, by white people, famous black jazz musicians saying, yes, this was a name originally given by white people to white people doing the music of black people. Anyway, fascinating stuff. Both in a sentence, Sarah McLaughlin is considered a pop rock adult contemporary performer, but I'd listen to her sing jazz, rock and roll, or just about anything else. Now let's get back to the interview. You know, you've talked about your relationship with your mom, too. You were adopted. There was a lot of back and forth where you didn't feel super supported by her. Mm -hmm. And it made you say more so, I, I am right about who I am and what I'm going to do. It's not, it's not about your direction and your desires for mm -hmm. me. It's about being authentic. Yeah, I mean, you know, I kind of, I think our generation to a certain degree did kind of raise ourselves. It's very different than parenting these days. Um, and in, in some ways, I think I'm, uh, part of me is the antithesis of who my mom was because she, she struggled a lot with, um, depression and, uh, she was a, a, a tough mother, um, was very, she never showed any affection, um, as, as a matter of fact, she was kind of mean to me in particular. And, and she, it's funny. She told me when she was 20, when I was 24, she said to me, you know, I was cruel to you, um, on purpose to, to balance things out because your dad was mean to your brothers. Up, yeah. Eh? Yeah. Um, then I'm like, well, thank you for explaining that to me. That makes a whole lot of sense. Doesn't actually make me feel that much better. Um, but yeah, she was, she was really tough and she kind of showed me how not to be, Yeah, you know, and, and, and also it's like, I'm going to prove you wrong. You keep telling me I'm going to fail. No, I'm not going to fail. I'm not going to let you win. So it, that, that really, it propelled me forward and pushed me. Um, you mentioned you did your own artwork directing, um, you really wanted to be for better or worse. Yeah. No, I'm <laughs> like you said, as a, as an artist, you wanted to have your hand in all the things that were you, especially because it's about, like you said, music that makes you feel music that connects you to the people that are listening to it. And in that way, you were ahead of your time in terms of turning down the, the ways that people wanted to commercialize you. You were also extremely ahead of your time with Lilith Fair. And how many people here went to Lilith Fair? Yes. So, uh, one of our sports, uh, oh, that haircut is gorge, by the way. I know. I keep so thinking cute. that I might want to cut my hair like that again. It, yeah. Um, sure is easy. One of our sports heroes, sheroes, is Abby Wambach, who once said, if they won't give you a seat at the table, screw pulling up a chair, build a new table. Mm -hmm. And when I think of Lilith Fair, that's just a whole new table. 
you you were done saying stop telling us no about playing our songs on the radio. There was a rule you couldn't play two women back to back on the radio. That still exists in country music. That you can't play women back to back on the radio. And they were telling you and all these up and coming women, okay, yeah, you're great, but like not too many of you. Why? No one knows. Everybody likes oh, because we all sound the same. Oh, of course you did. Yeah. Well, women only have one perspective, so we only need to hear it once. Um, let's talk about how you proved the demand for that before you launched the big thing. Uh, well, you know, it was interesting because we it started off so simply. I wanted to play some shows in the summer. I didn't want to have all the responsibility fall on my shoulders. And I was thinking about all the other amazing women who had opened up for me in the past and all these other women who I was getting to know musically um, and looking around going, well, I, I can't, I don't get to watch them perform. I look at all these summer festivals. They're all male dominated. Yet all these women are making great music and they're having a lot of success. Why are they not being represented? And so it's like, well, let's, let's just do something ourselves. And we did four shows in 1996. And that was okay because we, we worked with promoters that we knew sort of under the radar. And I reached out to a lot of women that I'd worked with in the past, uh, either opening up for or had some sort of relationship with. And they were all super keen. Let's do this. We played four shows and all of a sudden we were playing in front of 16,000 people, sold out crowds. And that was, I think, shocking for pretty much all of us because on our own, we'd each play to anywhere between, I don't know, two and 4,000 people. And all of a sudden there was this, this huge audience. And so it was definitely a, okay, we're going to do this. This is going to be so much fun. We reach out to all these other promoters that we don't have a previous relationship with. And they're like, what? <laughs> Yeah, no, you can't put two women on the same bill. I'm like, well, honey, I've been doing that for a while, and it's actually worked out just fine. Um, but there was a lot of reticence and a lot of, well, that's going to fail. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we're going to prove you wrong. And we actually, by the way, we just did. We did four shows, and they were all sold out. Um, so, but it was so begrudging. They're like, okay, well, we're going to give you really low, you know, low guarantees, and we're just not sure. So it was it was a bit of a a bit of a slog mm. to get there. And then it was also, um, it was challenging with managers of other artists we didn't have any previous relationships with because they're like, well, hey, we're unproven. And it's like, well, what is this? Is it a white chick folk fest? And I'm like, <laughs> no, it's not. Oh my gosh. We're like, we asked everybody and this is who we got the first time. And we're, you know, trying so hard to reach out to all these different genres of music and create something that's really inclusive and for all women and for all people, really, to enjoy. Because when I think about my musical tastes, I, you know, when I listen to a song, it's not, I don't instantly think, oh, that's male or female. It's like, right. does it move me? Mm-hmm. And who's singing is kind of secondary. And what they're saying is maybe third. And <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, it was it was definitely a, an uphill battle. It sounds like women's sports, to be honest. Like, yeah, it really so. does. Yeah. Put it out there. Please put it out there. The people will come. And you've got all the people standing in the way of a product that's desired. So many barriers. Yeah. So many senseless barriers. Well, like I said before, $7 million raised for local and national charities in addition to raising so many women's pro- you know, profiles and really changing the way that you were seen as an artist, too. So you continue making music. It gets more and more popular and not just popular, but life-changing. I, I was reading about the number of people who have truly said that your music saved their life, in particular your song, Angel, 
um, which was written about the keyboardist of Smashing Pumpkins who died of a heroin overdose. And you were looking around to people who were self-medicating and finding ways to escape from troubles or taking on the troubles of others. And you wrote that song. And it actually led to many people reaching out to you and saying, this song saved my life. This song is why I'm still alive. Um, you also had a stalker who was obsessed with you and your music in a way that became really terrible and, and difficult for you. That's where the line becomes you're, you're moving people in positive ways and difficult ways. How did you handle when it crossed over into like you're, you're changing people's lives with what you do? You know, ultimately it's one of the most beautiful validations anybody can have as, as a human being, as an artist to have a stranger walk up to me and say, you in some small way have changed my life for the better. I mean, that's, I tell you, I'll never, I never ever get tired of those stories and they, they've come for so many years now. And that angel is that one song in particular that, you know, I've heard, I, you know, I played this for my mother while she was passing, um, had doing, doing her cancer treatments, uh, you know, moms who have lost their children. They played it at the funeral. Um, uh, Daryl McDaniels from Run DMC. Mm-hmm. Um, he told me a beautiful story about he, he was, came off tour and he was, he was done. He was, he said he was thinking, contemplating suicide and he was in a cab and the song came on the radio and it just it changed things. It was yeah. a, he said it was a sign and he just played that song over and over and over for a couple of months and it, it got him through it. When's and, that collab happening? Ah, Let's work well, on we that. actually, we did have a collaboration, Cats in the Cradle. See, we both, he yeah. found that I was adopted. Yeah. And he's adopted too. And so he wanted to do something to kind of, um, you know, talk about that. So we, we both did that song together. Wow. That was a bunch of years ago now. The Spanish Inquisition is part of ESPN Nation, brought to you by Dr. Pepper. College football is back and so are the fans. Return to glory with Fansville by Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. We're running out of time here, but they forgot to put the clock on, so I'm giving myself a couple extra minutes. Just a couple. Just I'm not throwing everything off. Just a couple, because there's a couple more things I want to get to. Um, are there other hit songs that people misinterpret and it bothers you, or do you like the idea of take what you want from it? Oh, I, I'm definitely of the mindset of take what you want from it. I mean, I <clears throat> almost purposefully uh, either obfuscate or, or try and create a little bit of ambiguity in, in the songs because, uh, you know, sometimes it's for protecting, you know, people mm-hmm. who are don't have the, you know, they're, they're not necessarily happy that they're Okay, in the Taylor song. Swift, yeah. spill the beans. <laughs> Who's it about? You know, it's like don't date songwriters. <laughs> <laughs> or be nice to the songwriters. Right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, no, I, I, I think, uh, oh, wow. What was the question again? Yeah, it was about <laughs> you, if you let people take what they want from your music. You don't, you don't need yeah, them to know. I haven't done this in a while. Um, yeah, I, no, and, and again, it's, it's people will often come to say, what's that song about? Like Angel. Mm-hmm. I don't usually tell the story about the Smashing Pumpkins keyboard player because it it puts it in often a, a different light then people are you know they're drawing their own conclusions they're they're taking from it what they want and what they need for their own lives t- to help them and that when i say well what is it about te- for you mm-hmm. and they tell me go then that's what it's about yeah it doesn't matter what it's about for me that's my own selfish things and i don't it, it doesn't need to be yours right well and if it allows more people to feel connected to it and and bring it with them then that's the that's the beauty of it absolutely and i mean that's that's one of the greatest gifts music has to offer is that 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 universal like we all are 
we're all in this together and we all go through so similar base emotions. And when you, whether you hear it in a song or you see it in a painting or you read it in a book, someone can articulate in some manner that you can't, these really visceral, challenging or beautiful things that you're feeling and, and, and put it back to you in a way that, that makes sense. Like that's, that's magic. It is magic. That's why I'm going to be crying right in front this whole time when you're singing. Um, <laughs> The other magic of music is what you said. It, it saved your ass. It gave you a purpose. And you have the Sarah McLaughlin School of Music in Canada. And thousands of kids get to go learn for free, even if they wouldn't be able to afford it. Tell me why that's so important to you. Um, thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 20 years in, um, I started the foundation in 2001. And in 2002, we had our first pilot project, 219 Kids. And it's a completely free music program. Um, it's music and mentorship. It's long-term. It's high-touch. These kids come in, many of them, for eight years. And they uh, not only learn music. Learn, music is the conduit through which we teach self-esteem and team building and, and um you know, self-worth and, and how to communicate, how to understand your own emotional world and be empathetic to other people's emotional worlds. It's um, just an, it's an amazing tool. And yes, it's completely free. It always has been. It always will be. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been thousands and thousands of kids that have gone through the program. And I mean, there's the breadth of programming is, is so huge now. Like it started off being uh, like a percussion class, a junior choir, senior choir, guitar and piano. And now there's, you know, um, video production, there's beatboxing, there's songwriting, wow. um, and there's tons and tons of mashups. Like it's extremely collaborative. That's a big part of it. And also we try and create a lot of opportunities for performance for kids who do want to perform. Um, but it is by no means about sending kids to Juilliard or, um, getting them onto the voice. Yeah. It's, it's not about that. It's just about being, building up these kids, taking away all the barriers and building them up and showing them who they are, what they have to bring and that they have a voice, they have value, they are seen, heard. Um, and that in, especially the teenagers these days, it's, it's so, so, so important for kids who are at such a disadvantage with social media, I think. I, I just don't even get me going mm-hmm. on Instagram and um, what it does to young girls' self-esteem. But I just think kids really need the opportunity to connect in person. And this is why team sports mm-hmm. are just as important. Yeah. You know, to be together with a group of your peers and have to lean on each other and take care of each other and get through a tough thing. They get grit. They understand who they are and then what they can bring. And yeah. you that's know, where we, the magic that's, happens. That's where the magic happens. Yeah. And during COVID to pivot and have so many of those classes be available on demand for students who couldn't actually come. Just a powerful thing to keep alive for them during that tough time, too. Yeah. Well, um, some amazing teachers who just, you know, put a whole bunch of classes online and a whole lot of different, you know, ways to ways to continue the engagement. And during COVID, we got a, a couple performances from you online. Nothing like we're about to get, but one of them did include your daughter singing with you, which we had never seen before. And yeah. you're working on a new album, methodically. Is that a good word for it? That's a generous word for generous it. Generous methodic. We're we're moving our way towards a new album. Just still in the race. Nailed. Right there. Yeah, it's 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 painfully slow. 
Uh, the school and the foundation are taking up a lot of work right now, plus having two teenage girls is... Well, but they're going to sing on it with you. They agreed to do backup vocals. Well, my eldest, India, did. Yeah. yeah. The jury's out on the little one. Okay. Yeah. It sounds like she's got some time to decide. <laughs> she has, oh, God. Yeah, she does. <laughs> oh, here they, here they are, the beautiful girls. Oh, yeah, that's India, my eldest. Oh, yeah, that's a good face. Um, that was her best friend, Maisie. Yeah. Where's Oh, there's Poppy, my dog. Oh. That's yeah, you baby. write songs while hiking with your dog and surfing. I love that process. Yeah, well, you've got so much time just sitting out there in the water waiting for another wave. I just sing. Are you going to be surfing with everyone tomorrow morning? Uh, is there surfing tomorrow morning? There is, with the World Surf League. What? Yeah. Oh, I have to go. I have another thing down in Well, San Diego. you did make it out of Canada, so now you're probably, you know... I'm gonna try and I'm gonna try and serve Thursday morning before. There you go. Get Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much. Let's hear it for the incredible Sarah McLaughlin. That's what she said. Oh yeah. One more thing. This is a place for rants, raves, everything in between. I'll complain. I'll tell you something good to read or listen to or watch. This week. It's Sarah McLaughlin, her full performance at the summit. Um, it's just a beautiful, stripped-down, short show. Uh, her at the piano, her with just a guitar. But some really interesting storytelling in between, including the surprising story of what the song Adia is about, very honest and personal admission from Sarah, and then the song that was written about her stalker, which is a tune that takes a totally different meaning, way more haunting now that I know that. Um, you can find the whole performance at ESPNWSummit.com and then click to read watch i mean you should rewatch all the panels of course but uh sarah's performance espnwsummit.com is where you can find that link don't forget to tweet me at sarah spain if you have guest suggestions questions dilemmas or more thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me that's what she said <laughs>